Okay, as we begin, I kept uh, recapitulating the same idea over and over and over that Lewis was trying to get through to us. Okay, he was trying to get through to us this certain thing that is, he believes is universal, which is an indication or a key to understanding the universe. Does anybody remember what that was? The only thing I said to remember <laughs> in the entire class. Say it again, Bill. Yeah, yeah. So you're. Yeah, thank you. People, people knowing what's right or what's wrong. So you guys will remember. It'll blink. You know. Uh, thank you. So, so this idea that everybody has of this moral law that we all need to obey or, or good conduct. He's not getting into like an enumerated. Um, set of rules particularly, right? But it's this general sense that there's this law that's within us. It's not us. It's independent of us, but it guides our behavior so that, right, when, when somebody lies to us, I just pointed to you for no reason in particular, but if somebody lied to you, let's do it that way, you know, you, you would, you'd be offended by that if you found out, you know, and, and nobody really has to be told that from on high, I mean, to be sure, there's uh, the sense within culture that we ought to be uh, moral, that we ought to be good, that we ought to be honest, um, we ought to be fair, just, these things. And the big thing Lewis is just trying to get across is we all have this sense, and it comes from somewhere, and the somewhere it comes from is not ourselves, and it's not just somebody else but there's this other uh, place that it comes from, right? And so he was inching toward this other place. What is this uh, thing which conveys a moral law? And um, ultimately, he begins to, to say that whatever it is, it must be like like a mind. It's not like a law of gravity or a law of nature like that. Um, but this law is something that has been established by another entity, right? So he's not quite to God yet, but he's setting us up for it. Or back in the day, he was setting up his listeners for it. Um, so if we just go back to... Um, oh, I guess let's, let's do chapter 5. Um, And I don't know what page, what page is that in your text? 28. 28, okay. So he says, we have cause to be uneasy. Now, one of the things that, that he takes on there initially is people, you know, he's, he's presupposing objections. So people, would, people might say to him, well, are you just trying to bring back the, the old sense of right and wrong? Haven't we prog progressed beyond you know, those old sort of archaic categories, right? Because man, you know, humankind always wants to progress, always wants to move forward, right? If you're progressive, that's good. If you're regressive, that's bad. And um, I thought he had a good response to that. And you can use this for all of, if, if you're a regressive and you've got a bunch of progressive, annoying people in your life, um, <laughs> you know, or if you just want to hold on to... Uh, 
those age-old values. He says, well, first, to, as to putting back the clock, would you think I was joking if I said you can put a clock back and that if the clock is wrong, it is often a very sensible thing to do. If you're on the wrong road, progress means doing an about turn and walking back to the right road. And in that case, the man who turns back soonest is the most progressive man. What's really interesting here is that way back in the 40s, you know, there was still or there was already this idea of progressing past, you know, the old values. And Lewis was very keyed in on the idea that not only had people, you know, given up the, the traditional values that had, had maintained society for centuries, um, but, but also that because of that, culture was moving into you know, a radically problematic place where people didn't even necessarily, and we'll get to this in the, the next few chapters, that if people could not have a sense that they could be wrong, in other words, if some people would say, you know, a, a Christian might say, well, and popes have said this way back, actually, uh, you know, around the same time as Lewis, that uh, man has lost the sense of sin. So that if we don't actually believe we could sin, what, what implications would there be? And if, in other words, if, if I can just choose my own morality and determine that for myself, then I'm my own God, you know, I'm my own authority. And what does that mean for society? Well, we're basically living in that world now. So, so what, he's, what he's, uh, he's basically alluding to, and, and he's, he's somewhat fearful of, he's right in the, you know, this is the 40s. Um, he saw this very clearly way back then, um, and he wasn't the only one. Um, so what's interesting is when you read these thoughts, just always remember he's writing 80 years ago-ish, you know, 70 years ago. So the fact that he was seeing all this stuff then, and others as well, and then as you're reading it, reflect and say, wow, is that true now? Has that come to pass? I think this is one of the things. He says this, actually here, just to prove my point. If, he says, I think if you look at the present state of the world, it's pretty plain that humanity has been making some big mistake. We are on the wrong road. And if that is so, we must go back. Going back is the quickest way on. Now remember, uh, so when he would have written this, I mean, when he would have spoken it, it would have been 41. So you have Nazism and you have communism going on, in, and, it's, and people are very much in love with communism at this time, right? Um, it's, the, it's the new thing that is gonna uh, save, uh, save societies from all of the, the problems of capitalism, and of course there are problems with capitalism, and there were many back then. Exploitation of workers, you know, the, uh, uh, the 1%, as it were, having 99% of the wealth. I mean, people had these same experiences back then, and so communism, socialism really first, was seen as, um, as an antidote to these problems. And then when, when socialism didn't work, because remember, the, the, the idea was that uh, capitalism would just sort of morph into socialism. There would be this natural evolution into socialism where there would be uh, sort of more harmony among the classes, I mean, a class of society, et cetera. And then it didn't happen. So what happened is all the really, really smart people who thought it should happen said, well, let's make it happen. 
and there's communism. Uh, so that, that's what you get with communism, is a small group of people making everybody else be socialists. Um, and then you have Russia and Cuba and China <clears throat> and deaths and deaths and deaths. It's never worked. Okay. Um, so when he's writing, he's thinking about that stuff. You know, when we're reading it, we're thinking of, well, I mean, there is still kind of communism, but Hillary didn't get elected, so we're okay. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'll make a joke about Republicans. Um, I'm kind of kidding. Um, but, but um, the, uh, you know, but, but communism really isn't the thing. You know, there's some elements of socialism, but there's some elements of socialism even in Catholic social doctrine that, you know, uh, uh, people on this side of the pond are going to feel very uncomfortable with if you read that. Um, but it's there. And uh, so there's, there's always that kind of tension, you know, with, with economics and with social policy. Anyway, but as we think of it, we might be thinking of stuff like extremism, um, intolerance from, from perhaps now really intolerance mostly from the left, but sometimes intolerance from the far right as well, which we've seen, um, including, uh, um, you know, radical Islam, which, you know, we, we kind of think of, I, th I think of first when I think of intolerance. I think of radical Islam and the far left when I think of intolerance. Um, anyway. So what he's saying here is, is secondly, he's, he's not quite moved to a religious position. He's only saying that we've got so far as a somebody or something behind that moral law. And we're trying to figure out about who this might be through our own merits or our own efforts. Okay? And he says there are two bits of evidence about this somebody. Number one, the universe he made. And the other bit of evidence is that moral law which he has put into our minds. You find out more about God from the moral law than from the universe in general, just as you find out more about a man by listening to his conversation than by looking at the house he has built. Now, from the second bit of evidence, we conclude that the being behind the universe is intensely interested in right conduct. Okay, now how do you draw that conclusion? Well, because if we have this interior moral law always moving us to do what is right and good, we can infer that the one who created it is very concerned that we do that which is right and good. Right? Makes sense. He's taken his very incremental steps. Um, if, if the one who made the moral law was very interested in our wickedness and our achieving wickedness, then he wouldn't have put a moral law in us that gives us this desire to do that which is good. So the fact that he has given us this desire says something about the one who gave it what he's interested in. He's interested in right conduct, okay? He's interested in fair play, unselfishness, courage, good faith, honesty, and truthfulness. In that sense, we should agree with the account given by Christianity and some other religions that God is good. But he's not good in the sense of being indulgent or soft or sympathetic. It's these kind of paragraphs why I love Lewis. There's nothing indulgent about the moral law. It's hard as nails. It tells you to do the straight thing and it does not seem to care how painful or dangerous or difficult it is to do. If God is like the moral law, then he is not soft. 
It is no use at this stage saying that what you mean by a good God is a God who can forgive. You're going too quickly. Only a person can forgive. And we have not yet got as far as a personal God behind the moral law. More like a mind than anything else. But it still may be very much like a person. If it is a pure impersonal mind, there may be no sense in asking it to make allowances for you to let it off, to let you off. Just as there is no sense in asking the multiplication table to let you off when you do your sums wrong. Okay, All right, I don't know if you're following this, but if, if the mind behind the moral law, let's just, we'll just skip to the chase. We know he's going to God, all right? So <laughs> if the God behind the moral law is unsympathetic, Right? He just doesn't care. He just has a moral law, and you break it or not. You, you keep it or you break it. Then he's not going to forgive because he's not sympathetic. Right? Only a person can forgive. But if it's just sort of this, this mind uh, who cares not about us as persons, is not personally involved, okay, then the way that he's going to treat us relative to our failure of the moral law is going to be pretty tough, pretty rigorous, okay? And it is no use either saying that there is a God of that sort, an impersonal absolute goodness. Then you do not like him, and you are not going to bother about him. For the trouble is that one part of you is on his side and really agrees with his disapproval of human greed and trickery and exploitation. You may want him to make an exception in your own case, to let you off this one time. But you know at bottom that unless the power behind the world really and unalterably detests that sort of behavior, then he cannot be good. So if God does not truly detest our sins, he can't be good. On the other hand, we know that if there does exist an absolute goodness, it must hate most of what we do. That's the terrible fix we're in. So we would like him, this... Again, he's moving us toward a God who forgives, but he's starting here. He's, he's, he's setting this up for people who are not, not sure about this God behind the moral law. And he's saying, okay, look, if, if, the, if you think this person behind the moral law, this God behind the moral law, is a God who um, is just about justice and hates what we do, then we're in a really tough spot because every time we do something wrong, we're going to want mercy but we're going to know that that kind of God won't give us mercy. So we're in a bit of a, in a, in a tough spot is what he's saying. And he's trying to set people up to understand how, how and why a God can be merciful. Okay. We cannot do without it and we cannot do with it. God is the only comfort. He is also the supreme terror. The thing we most need and the thing we most want to hide from. He is our only possible ally, and we have made ourselves his enemies. So he's a good God, so he's our ally, but we keep breaking the moral law, so he's our adversary is kind of what Lewis is saying. And again, don't try to pull out of this proper theology. He's just trying to get us to think about what kind of, if there's a God behind the moral law, what would he be like? Well, he would be good because he wants us to be good. But what does it mean that he's good? So is he good in an uncaring way, like he just wants to enforce good behavior? Or is he good in a way that supersedes that, 
which leads to something like forgiveness. All right? Third point. When I chose to get to my real subject in this roundabout way, here he admits it, right? I was not trying to play any kind of trick. I had a different reason. My reason was that Christianity simply does not make sense until you have faced the sort of facts I've been describing. Christianity tells people to repent and promises them forgiveness. It therefore has nothing to say to people who do not know they have done anything to repent of and who do not feel that they have any need of forgiveness. Right? The Lord Jesus says that. I've come for those who are in need of a physician. Right? Those who are well don't need a physician, but the sick do. He's come for the sick. And you have to know you're sick. Right? To receive mercy and forgiveness, you have to know you need mercy and forgiveness. If you think you're great and you're fine and you have nothing to repent of, you don't need God. And so therefore, Lewis is saying, he doesn't have anything to say to you. And I think that's right. It is after you have realized that there is a real moral law and a power behind the law and that you have broken that law and put yourself wrong with that power. It's after all of this and not a moment sooner that Christianity begins to talk, begins to make sense. When you know you are sick, you'll listen to the doctor. Right? I mean, gosh, that's so... I remember one time I had a... I needed a tooth pulled, you know, and I went to the dentist down the street. I'm just like, just do it. It's like, it's going to hurt. I don't care. Pull it out. Get rid of it, you know. You'll do anything, you know, to, to, to kind of get rid of that pain. When you realize that our position is nearly desperate, you will begin to understand what Christians are talking about. They offer an explanation of how we got into our present state of both hating goodness and loving it. They offer an explanation of how God can be this impersonal mind at the back of the moral law and yet also a person. They tell you how the demands of this law, which you and I cannot meet, have been met on our behalf. How God himself becomes a man to save man from the disapproval of God. All I'm doing here is to ask people to face the facts, to understand the questions which which Christianity claims to answer. And they are very terrifying facts. I wish it was possible to say something more agreeable, but I must say what I think is true. Of course, I quite agree that the Christian religion is, in the long run, a thing of unspeakable comfort, but it does not begin in comfort. It begins in the dismay I have been describing, and it is no use at all trying to go on to that comfort without first going through that dismay. In religion and in war, everything else and everything else, comfort is the one thing you cannot get by looking for it. If you look for truth, you may find comfort in the end. If you look for comfort, you will not either get comfort or truth, only soft soap and wishful thinking to begin with, and in the end, despair. Again, this is one of those end of the chapter paragraphs that I love about him, that he says, look, you, if, if you go into Christianity thinking you're great and you have nothing to repent of, you will not find comfort. You will not find it. And really, Christianity isn't for you. Because, you know, if we say, well, well, gosh, everybody's sort of good and everybody's going to heaven and everybody's going to get their wings because they're going to become an angel, which is not true because angels are different than men. Um, you know, and if we have this sort of, you know, I don't know, utopian vision of God, what does that say about God who died on the cross? 
What does it say about Christ who walked that road, right, and suffered all that he suffered for us? That was just a, a huge act of, of sort of uh, overindulgent God that was totally unnecessary. The fact that God died for your sins and my sins is incredibly, incredibly significant to the whole story. It means that our sins killed God. It means that our sins were grave enough that to remit them, God had to die. Because there's no way for us to do it. We're going to get to that when we get to, I think, the chapter on the perfect penitent. But God died so that he could preserve both justice and mercy, right? The, the justice of that sort of impersonal mind that gives the, the law, if you will, as well as the mercy of the personal God who, it's just the same God. But it, it fulfills both the requirements of the law as well as fulfills the goodness and the mercy of God, that God himself died on the cross. But it, as soon as we start to say things like, well, my sins aren't that bad, or we're not that bad, or it's not really that big of a deal, then we empty the cross of its meaning. It, it just doesn't make sense then. Why would a God do that? And then we start to think things like, well, maybe it wasn't really God at all, because why would, he, why would God need to do that? Okay, so now we're going to move into book two. And what he does here is a little bit of comparative religion, all right? What's, and I think what's so fascinating about it is that he's coming from it as a former atheist. So he went full-on atheist, and then he was troubled by all these questions that he just spent his time making us think about. And he, he waded through all of that muck, and he came out a Christian. And, and so as he's writing this stuff, there's so much that's autobiographical. And he says this, I'm, I'm going to begin by telling you one thing that Christians do not need to believe. And what he says is that Christians do not need to believe that every other religion is completely wrong. Or that the main parts of every religion are completely wrong. That a Christian can look at other religions, even pagan religions, and they can recognize um, goodness within some of those religions, right? You can look at Hinduism or Buddhism, and we can see some elements of goodness in those religions, even if it's just sort of the search for the transcendent itself, you know, which is sort of the, desire, the inherent desire, the innate desire of man to, to connect with something beyond him, that we can look at other religions with a certain amount of respect you know, and, and recognize the goodness is, that is there. But he says this of atheism. He says, but if you are an atheist, you have to believe. You do have to believe that the main point in all the religions of the whole world is simply one huge mistake. If you are a Christian, you are free to think that all these religions, even the queerest ones, that word used to mean something else, <laughs> even the queerest ones contain at least some hint of the truth. So he says this, when I was an atheist, I had to try to persuade myself that most of the human race have always been wrong about the question that mattered to them most. But when I became a Christian, I was able to take a more liberal view, right? I mean, you can, he could be more liberal about looking at the other religions and saying, well, you know, there's, there's goodness here. There's things that, that seem to be on the right path and et cetera. We don't have to be threatened by that just because we recognize that 
some Lutherans are actually good people. It just doesn't have to <laughs> threaten us. My whole father's side of the family is, is Lutheran. But, you know, that doesn't have to threaten us at all. I mean, they're Christians, and, and we can move on to, to non-Christian religions as well. But, of course, being a Christian does mean thinking that where Christian, Christianity differs from other religions, Christianity is right and they are wrong. As in arithmetic, there is only one right answer to a sum, and all other answers are wrong. But some of the wrong answers are much nearer being right than others. Okay? And so then he says, the first big division of humanity is into the majority who believe in some kind of God or gods and the minority who do not. On this point, Christianity lines up with the majority. Ancient Greeks, Romans, modern savages, Stoics, Platonists, Hindus, uh, Muslims, against the modern Western European materialist. Did I, did I explain what, what the materialist view is? I mean, it's probably, it's probably obvious, but just to make sure um, that everything that exists Everything that exists is matter. All right? This is, this is going to be echoed by uh, most of science. Although, obviously, you have scientists who are, who are Christian. So you usually will, will say something like uh, positivism. And positivism is just saying... When you attach that to science, you're just saying that science has all the answers, okay? If you attach positivism to something else, psychology, psychology has all the answers, okay? Um, but also, you have uh, Democritus, who, uh, who, exist, who, who, who is a philosopher before Plato, who held this view. And the view then was just simply called atomism, and uh, Democritus believed that everything just existed of atoms. He didn't have the sense of atoms that we have today. He just believed that there are these atoms sort of flying through, through all of space, not outer space, but all of space. And they, when they collide with each other, you have uh, the amalgamation of that is all the things that you see. So it's essentially the same, the same view. Everything that exists is composed of matter there is nothing that exists which is immaterial. Okay, so a materialist, if you said, well, what about the soul? He'd say, if it's not made of matter, it doesn't exist. Okay, scientists fall, usually will fall into this when they're doing science because they can't answer questions about things that are not material. You can't really uh, experiment on something that you don't think is there. <laughs> So you can't say it. Science can say nothing coherent about God because it doesn't study God. It's not the purpose. You can't do uh, um, through the empirical method, right, the senses. You can't study God. Although you could for about 33 years, I guess. There weren't really many scientists back then. So that's, that's the big first division is those who are the materialists, and they're often atheists, um, and those who uh, believe in some kind of God, you know, they're theists of some kind. Um, 
Um, and this could be, and he's saying here, he's like, look, it's monotheism, Christianity, uh, Islam, uh, Judaism, as well as Hinduism, as well as anything. Anything that believes in a non-material God is that second category, which of course is the main, uh, is the largest group of, of humanity. He says the next big division is this, people who all believe in God can be divided according to the sort of God they believe in. There are two very different ideas on the subject. One of them is the idea that he is beyond good and evil. We humans call one thing good and another bad, but according to some people, that is merely our human point of view. Okay, so now the division has to do with what is God? Um, what is God? We're not yet to who, we're at what. What is God? Is, um, is God everything? Is, this is pantheism. Pantheism, right? All God, everything is God. Um, so this is, uh, this is also going to be, this is going to be people who say that, that we're all, you know, divinity is in all of us. Everybody is God. Everything is God. Everything is God. Okay. All that exists is God. The problem with that is once, if, if everything ceased existing, so would God. Does that make sense? If God is in everything and everything is God, and if we say God is everything, then if all of those things cease, then God would cease. So then God is limited by matter. It's kind of the inherent problem with pantheism. God, is, God has limitations. Normally when we speak of God, most people say, well, God is, um, as, as uh, Anselm said, God is that, that which nothing greater can be thought. Okay, so... So the first, the first big division then of those who believe in a God is pantheism and then sort of the Christian view. Um, they think that God invented and made the universe. So this is God is the universe. Okay, and the Christian view, although not only the Christian view, God is distinct from the universe. He created it. Much like a painter creates a painting, he is like the, the divine painter who creates a painting. And if the painting ceases to be, he still exists. He's independent of that which he created. I expect you to see how this difference between pantheists and Christians hangs together with the other one. If you do not take the distinction, but, okay, does that make sense? The, the, how it hangs together with materialism. Okay. And uh, that, that essentially, if, if God is only in that which is matter, then he's bound by the matter. 
right? And in some sense, he couldn't have created the matter because he is the matter. So he doesn't really stand apart from that which he created. All right, but with theism, you have this. So this is a good, this is a good thing to go into. Has anybody, you, have you ever run into somebody who's like, everybody's God? I have. Everybody's God. God is in you. God is in me. God is, which actually there's a part of that which we would agree with, namely because of grace. But, um, but I, yeah, I've, I've talked to those people. I actually have a really good friend who's, a, who's an atheist, kind of. But I think he's a pantheist. I don't think he's an atheist. But anyway, they're very close. But he's a very, very good friend of mine. And, um, you know, but this is, these are the kind of things you don't talk about when you have a good friend who's a pantheist. <laughs> but if we, if we talked about it, these would be the things I would say as well. Like if everything's God, then what does that say about God? That God is contingent, his being is contingent upon the existence of everything else. Meaning that his existence, um, that, that matter is necessary for his existence. He's tied to all things that exist, which means he can't be a creator God. So then where the heck did he come from? So stuff just came into being and God was there? Like, how did that work? I mean, it, it, it's, a difficult, it's a difficult thing to defend. But, but go back to that if you, if you ever have um, a good friend that you want to meet. All right. If you do not take the distinction between good and bad very seriously, then it is easy to say that anything you find in the world is a part of God. So again, he's taking apart pantheism here, basically. But of course, you cannot think something's really bad and God really good. If you think something's really bad and God really good, you can't talk like that. If you have a distinction in your mind, which all of us do, we've already set that up. If we have this distinction in our mind between goodness and badness, you can't really think of everything existing being a part of God and therefore good because you must believe that God is separate from the world and some of the things we see in it are contrary to his will. Confronted with a cancer or a slum, the pantheist can say, if you could only see it from the divine point of view, you would realize that this is also God. The Christian replies, don't talk damn nonsense. There's a, he explains what he means by damned. He actually means damned, nonsense. For Christianity is a fighting religion. It thinks God made the world, that space and time, heat and cold, and all the colors and tastes and all the animals and vegetables are things that God made up out of his head as a man makes up a story. But it also thinks that a great many things have gone wrong with the world that God made and that God insists and insists very loudly on our putting them right again. And of course, that raises a very big question. If a good God made the world, why has it gone wrong? If a good God made the world, why has it gone wrong? And he says, for many years, I refused to listen to the Christian answers because I kept on feeling whatever you say and however clever your arguments are, isn't it much simpler and easier to say that the world was not made by any intelligent power? And it's true. It's true. I mean, you, you have people who, who are enduring great suffering, you know, like um, they're experiencing great suffering, the great suffering of their children, you know, and infants and that sort of thing. And you try to explain to them that there's a good God, but that some of it just went wrong. It's hard. 
it's just really hard when they're in that space to, to give any sort of credence to that argument. And that's kind of what he's saying. Isn't it easier just to say, eh, it, this is just chance? Because if a good God exists, he wouldn't let this happen to my kid. If a good God exists, he wouldn't let this happen to the person I love. It's easier, and this is what Lewis is saying when he was an atheist, it's just easier to say, eh, it's just all chance or... I don't know. There's no intelligence behind it. Because if there is intelligence and goodness, it wouldn't have done this. He continues, aren't all your arguments simply a complicated attempt to avoid the obvious? But then that threw me back into another difficulty. Holding that view, that all of your arguments about a good God who's trying to make things right and things went wrong and he's intelligent and you know that he, had, he, had, he was at a point where he just rejected all of that you know, for saying that it's just much easier to face the obvious thing. This is where a lot of people are today. Just face the obvious thing. There's no way Islam's right. There's no way Judaism is right. There's no, eh, all of you people, these are all fairy tales we gave up in the Middle Ages, and some people are still holding on to them. That's a, that's a very, very common view. And that's where he was at. Just saying, look, all of these things are just wishful thinking. But then he says, but I couldn't get past this one idea. How did I get this idea of just and unjust? So if, if there's no God behind the universe, that it's just, it's there, right? And all these attempts to say there's a good God, a God who is just, a God who is loving, and the world just went wrong. And so because of that, a person says, no, there's no way that that could be true so therefore, it's just all a fiction. I don't know what the answer is, but it's a fiction. The thing that haunted Lewis was still this idea of justice and injustice. Where did I get this idea? Because if there's no God, why would I have any idea of there being a just or unjust God or a just or unjust reality? Where does that come from? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What, I was, what, what was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? If the whole show was bad and senseless from A to Z, so to speak, why did I, who was supposed to be a part of that show, find myself in such violent reaction against it? A man feels wet when he falls into water because a man is not a water animal. A fish would not feel wet, right? If you were just existing in this meaningless, senseless universe, it would just be what there is. You would have no sense that the universe you lived in was unjust. The skunks in my backyard who are repeatedly <laughs> trapped, and I would love to execute them all personally, but I cannot in the city limits. That's aside the fact. Um, they have no sense while they're in that cage of how unjust it is. All they know is they're in a confined space and they can't get out. And they're, they, they can't even reflect on the fact that their reality is different. All they know is they can't operate and they desperately want to get out. And so they start digging if they can through the, through the cage. So every time we move a cage, there's all this dirt, you know, they're trying to sort of get out of there. Um, but they're in that world. Of course, they, have, they don't have minds, so they can't reflect. But... If we were just a part of this senseless world, why would we have a, any conclusion that it was senseless or unjust in the first place? 
Of course, I could not have given up my idea of justice by saying it was nothing but a private idea of my own. But if I did that, then my argument against God collapsed too. For the argument depended on saying that the world was really unjust, not simply that it did not happen to please my private fancies. Thus, in the very act of trying to prove that God did not exist, in other words, that the whole of reality was senseless, I found I was forced to assume that one part of reality, namely my idea of justice, was full of sense. Consequently, atheism turns out to be too simple. If the whole universe has no meaning, we should never have found out that it has no meaning. Just as if there were no light in the universe and therefore no creatures with eyes, we should never know it was dark. Dark would have no meaning. If you couldn't see, everything would be dark. What would dark mean? Dark would just be what is. There would be no contrast. Um, Okay, good. Any questions? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Right. Yeah, yeah, if somebody, his point is just saying that if, if the only reality you've ever known is what it is, you, where, from whence would you get a concept that this isn't the way it ought to be? So if, if I have this concept or this idea that the, that the world is unjust, how would I know that? This is the only world I've ever known. It's just the world. It should just be the world we live in. But why do I have this idea that it's unjust? And not just, not just unfair, but unjust. That something which would be owed to us is being deprived of us. Where does this sense come from? Where does the sense that there is meaninglessness in the universe? You wouldn't have that sense unless there was something else you know, you were being led to something else, or if something had been, if you will, planted in you by nature or by God to be able to, again, he's kind of circling back also to that moral law. He's basically sort of arguing from, I don't want to say intuition, but, but these innate desires that all of us have, that to have these desires doesn't make any sense unless there's something else which implants them within us. So the blind person... I mean, if they're truly completely blind and blind from birth, wouldn't know what light is. And if nobody was there to explain to them what it, what it was, it's not what you experience, then the blind person would have no concept of light and dark. They would just have what is. And so the same thing with justice. If you, if you didn't have a concept of a just world, then you wouldn't have a concept of an unjust world. So there's this sense that, that he has, and again, he's describing how he came to it, that when he was trying to get rid of God by saying, no, this is just all fairy tale, it's just easier to think of all of this coming to be randomly, 
or there being no meaning, no purpose, etc., that every time he went there, he's like, well, wait a second. Why do I have this sense that there's meaninglessness? Why should there be meaning? If this is just the world, why do I have this concept of meaningless attached to the world that I'm comparing it to a world that would have meaning or a world that is unjust, I'm comparing it to a world that would be just or a God who would be just. But where does that concept of justice come from? If I believe that there is no God, I wouldn't have that concept. So it, it ends up bringing him back to sort of a lawgiver or one who gives the moral law or gives meaning. Okay, so chapter two. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Oh, okay. So what? Yeah, yeah. Thank you. So what he was talking about was when he was referring to, um, he was talking about kind of setting this all up to to somebody who would say, "Well, we're progressive. You know, we're progressive today. Our morality has evolved." You know, we want to be progressive, man. We don't want to hold on to these fairy tales of, of the medieval period, these, these old concepts of good and evil, of, of good and bad, you know, that you teach children. We've progressed beyond that. And, and what he's saying is, well, sure, everybody wants to be progressive, but the most progressive man would actually be if he saw that where we had moved was in the wrong direction. Like if you take the wrong turn, you know, and every man is stubborn, they're not going to look at the map. You know, but if you took the wrong turn, the most progressive man is the one who, who says, I took the wrong turn, and turns around first and goes back on the right road. So what he's basically just trying to say is culture, he's, he's looking at culture and certain, certain influences in culture, and he's saying, you're on the wrong path. The, the real progressive one is, is man or person is the one who recognizes it and turns around and gets back on the right road. Same thing, he'll say the same thing in, uh, I think in The Great Divorce when he talks about um, the, the kind of life you're living. That, you know, with, as we live life, there are all these forks in the road, all these decisions we have to make. And some of those decisions are, you know, have, have a, a lot of gravitas, right? They're, they're very serious, they're very powerful, they have a lot of consequences. And if we, we make... Uh, a turn in the road, if we, if we take a fork in the road and it ends up being the wrong decision, a sin or um, a lifestyle change or, you know, just, just something big, he says, it's not just a matter of getting back onto the right road. There's actually a coming back to the fork and then moving on. And what he, what he essentially calls this is it's his image for repentance, that you have to repent of how far you've gone and that means coming back and then getting on the right path. Correct. Correct. And so some people are on the wrong path for a long time, and they don't, maybe they don't know any better. Um, but, you know, everything is, everything's, a lot of times, this, a lot of times people say that they, don't, they didn't know any better. Sometimes they don't know any better. But sometimes they don't know any better because they're, they're walking with blinders, and as their world is collapsing around them, you know, they're like, no, this is going to work out. <laughs> everything's, everything's caving in. And then at a certain point, um, and I think a lot of us have been there, you know, you say, 
Okay, okay, I have to face facts now. It's not working out. Psst. I have to turn around. Okay. So he says atheism is too simple. And another view that's also too simple is the view that I call Christianity in water. The view which simply says there's a good God in heaven and everything is all right, leaving out all of the difficult and terrible doctrines about sin and hell and the devil and the redemption. Both of these are boys' philosophies. It's really interesting. Um, I, was, I was reading that today and I was thinking, you know, there's so many prominent atheists. I did a class on atheism and, and postmodernism uh, some years ago. And uh, there's all these really famous atheists. A lot of them are English, but, but, but some, are, some are American. Sam Harris is still going around being a professional atheist. And um, so when I read this, I just thought, wow, I mean, it's really interesting how trivial Lewis when he writes now, looks at atheism. He just says, it's a boy's philosophy. He just, he's like, it's, it's for boys. It's not a serious, that's ultimately where he stands. He's like, it's just not serious. Or this Christianity and water, it's not serious. Like if you really want to look at reality for what it is and then look at a God who has created that reality and, and by virtue of his permissive will allowed that reality to be broken and then comes to save the world and all of humanity, if you look at it in the totality, it can't just be this, this soft Christianity where everything is all good and happy. And in another place he talks about, he says, we don't so much want a father in heaven, but a grandfather in heaven who looks upon all his children and at the end of the day says, well, at least everybody had a good time. <laughs> you know, uh, that actually might be in this book. Okay, it's no good asking for a simple, this is basically what he just said, no good asking for a simple re religion. After all, real things are not simple. He's kind of in some ways asking people to grow up. Like, grow up. You know, your fascination with atheism is just stupid. It, it doesn't make any sense at all. I'm not saying this, he's saying this. And your, your desire to have this, this Christian faith, which, which is just, you know, Santa Claus, God, it just grow up. That is not the world we live in. You know, and I think as we go through the battle of life, and we got all these scars and sufferings and sacrifices, I mean, I think we get that. Like, if, if Christianity is just that simple, why do I have all these scars? Why have I gone through all this pain? Why has my family gone through all this pain? That does not make sense if I believe in this Christianity, which is just soft, you know? Um, obviously I'm very sympathetic to that. If you want to go on and ask what is really happening, then you must be prepared for something difficult. Very often, however, this silly procedure is adopted, the simplicity, is adopted by people who are not silly, but who consciously or unconsciously want to destroy Christianity. Such people put up a version of Christianity suitable for a child of six, and make that the object of their attack. When you try to explain the Christian doctrine as it really is held by an instructed adult, they then complain that you are making their heads turn round and that it's all too complicated, and that if there really were a God, they are sure that he would have made religion simple because simplicity is so beautiful. You must be on your guard against these people, for they will change their ground every minute and only waste your time. 
Notice, too, their idea of making religion simple, idea of God making religion simple, as if religion were something God invented and not his statement to us of certain quite unalterable facts about his own nature. So that religion is more about God than about just the practice of religion, that it's we practice faith because of who God is. We don't, or we practice religion because of who God is, not merely because of some sort of man-made, you know, uh, what do you call it, uh, liturgy and um, choreography and all the rest. You think I want to wear those clothes at Mass? <laughs> no. Father must really like that chasuble. No. Do you ever like the chasuble? No. Do you like the white thing underneath? No. Why'd you become a priest? Not for the clothes. <laughs> Not for the clothes. So, hey, if you run into a priest, you did it for the clothes. Find a different priest. <laughs> okay. Besides being complicated, reality in my experience is odd, not neat, not obvious, not what you would expect. And so he says, reality is not something you could have guessed. That's one reason I believe in Christianity. It's a religion you could not have guessed. If it offered us just the kind of universe we had always expected, I should feel we were making it up. But in fact, it is not the sort of thing anyone would have made up. It is just that queer twist about it that real things have. So let us leave behind all these boys' philosophies, these over-simple answers. The problem is not simple, and the answer is not going to be simple either. What is the problem? Okay, so here's a very, very important distinction I want you to all get down. And this, this has been, and this is the distinction between uh, Christianity and dualism, okay? Now, I'm going to presume you have a, a pretty good grasp of what Christianity is. But dualism, as, it, as it's applied to God, is just what it sounds like. Dual. There's two. Okay? And this is a very, very popular position relative to God, the universe, etc. And, and he even admits, you know, there's only really two religions that face the facts as they are. The problem is complex, the solution is complex. And he says that one of them is the Christian view, and that's the view that a, that a good, gr good girl, <laughs> good girls too, this is the view that a good world has gone wrong, but still retains the memory of what it ought to have been. The other view is called dualism. Dualism means the belief that there are two equal and independent powers at the back of everything, one of them good and the other bad, and that this universe is the battlefield in which they fight out an endless war. This is a very, very popular position. Um, the Manichaean sect in, in, the, uh, in the early church, which Augustine belonged to, he was, he was a Manichaean, it was a dualistic religion, and it pops up all throughout even Catholicism, um, different heresies pop up. And what, what it ends up sort of, the way it, it kind of plays itself out in a sort of Christian 
uh, uh, context, dualism, is this idea that matter is bad and evil and spirit is good. Okay? And if you read Paul a certain way, it sure sounds like Paul's kind of a dualist. So this question was debated in the early church. It was a big deal. That's why I want you to, to be clear about what dualism is. Not that you need to, to know everything about it, but there's a, and he's got it right in here, but there's, there's a really great way of just clear, clearing up why there's no way it could be true. Um, it just can't suffice for, for a concept of God, okay? Um, and that's what he sets up. So the dualism, the two powers, spirits or gods, one good and one bad, are supposed to be independent. They both existed from all of eternity. Neither of them made each other. Neither of them has any more right to call the other God or itself God. Wait, no one has, neither has any more right than the other to call itself God. Each presumably thinks it is good and thinks the other bad. One of them likes hatred and cruelty. The other likes love and mercy and each backs its own view. Now, what do we mean when we call, one of, we call one of them the good power and the other the bad power? Either we are merely saying that we happen to prefer the one to the other, like preferring ring beer to cider, or... <laughs> That's what hyphens are for. Like preferring beer to cider. I was like, what's ring beer? Oh, it's a hyphen. All right. Like preferring beer to cider, or else we are saying that Whatever the two powers think about it, and whichever we humans at the moment happen to like, one of them is actually wrong, actually mistaken, in regarding itself as good. Now, if we mean merely that we happen to prefer the first, then we must give up talking about good and evil. For good means what you ought to prefer, quite regardless of what you happen to like at the moment. So we must mean that one of the two powers is actually wrong, and the other right. Okay. So dualism, there's a, good God, there's a good power and an evil power. And for all of eternity, they battle each other. But they both think they're good. All right, that's the way the concept goes. The evil power is striving to spread its evil. The good power is striving to, to, to spread its goodness. They, they both are, you know, it's this yin and yang sort of deal. Um, but when we look at it, we say, well, one of them is good and one of them is evil. That's how we describe them. One is good and one is evil. But the moment you say that, you're putting a third thing into the universe. Some law or standard, see, we're back to this. This is why he prepared us for this, right? As soon as you say one is good and one is evil, now you're putting into the picture or into the discussion this idea of goodness, which one of the powers conforms to and the other fails to conform to. But since the two powers are judged by the standard, then the standard, or the being who made the standard, is farther back and higher up than either of them. And he would be the real God. Does that make sense? So if I can say, um, let's, let's do it this way. If I can say uh, power... A and power B. Okay, so, so like I'm existing in this universe with these two co-equal eternal powers, and I'm 
let's say I'm, I'm, that's the way I see the world, I see the universe, and whenever I'm influenced by power A, that to me I describe as goodness, and whenever I'm influenced by power B, I describe that as evil. What he's saying is, now that we've inserted, inserted a concept or rule of goodness, there's something which has bearing and determines both of these powers. There's, there's a standard now which both of these powers have to live up to. In other words, there's something greater than the two powers. Does that make sense? And if there's something greater than these two, then they can't be God. If there's something greater than the two gods, then they're not God. Because God, as we understand God to be eternal, perfect, etc., if, if there's something greater than the gods, then he's, even in, even in the, you know, sort of the pantheon of gods, right? You, you still have Zeus, you know, there's, there's still always, like, there's one God, even in the, the uh, um, pantheistic or polytheistic religions, um, there's, there's always that one God who trumps everyone else. So there's, there's this concept that we have that there's always one thing at the beginning. I mean, Plato had it. You know, Plato, Plato believed, um, and this is not Christianity, but... Um, he believed in something he called the demiurge. Aristotle said, well, there's a first cause or the uh, unmoved mover. And this is pagan, you know. Um, but Aristotle knew that, well, there, there can't just be endless, endless uh, change in the universe, something had to start motion, there had to be an unmoved mover at the beginning of it all. So there, you know, there's this concept is just there in everything. Okay. The same point can be made in a different way. If dualism is true, then the bad power must be a being who likes badness for his own sake. A being who likes badness for its own sake. But in reality, we have no experience of anyone liking badness just because it's bad. The nearest we can get to, to it is in cruelty. But in real life, people are cruel for one of two reasons, either, either because they're sadists, that is, because they have a sexual perversion which makes cruelty a cause of pleasure to them, or else for the sake of something they are going to get out of the cruelty, money, or power, or safety. But pleasure, money, power, and safety are all, as far as they go, good things. The badness consists in pursuing them by the wrong method, or the wrong way, or too much. I do not mean, of course, that the people who do this are not desperately wicked. I do mean that wickedness, when you examine it, turns out to be the pursuit of some good in the wrong way. You can be good for the mere sake of goodness. You cannot be bad for the mere sake of badness. Now this is St. Thomas Aquinas through and through. This is Catholic theology through and through. That, and it's also 
also Aristotle, that all beings act for a good or a perceived good. They might be wrong about the good, but they do it because they think it actually is going to bring them something. Okay, so you wouldn't sin if there wasn't something you were getting out of it. All right? Because if it was just horrible, if, if committing a sin was like chopping off your finger, you wouldn't sin. There has to be something good you're getting out of it. Right? People who fornicate are not fornicating because they hate it. Oh, I hate this. <laughs> Does that prove the point? I mean, I mean even the alcoholic who, who is chemically dependent still thinks there's, there's some goodness, there's something they're getting out of it that has some sort of pleasure. Even if they have this ultimate knowledge that it's not good for them, they're still, when I was a smoker, I smoked for, it was in seminary, it's a good place to smoke. Um, I think I, I was like a smoker for 10 years, and I think I tried to quit for seven of them. Every time, every time I bought a stupid pack of cigarettes, I'm like, but I really want one, you know, because I, I just really need that which it's going to give me. And the, the, the horrible thing about smoking is, if, as you, some of you probably know, is that you get, it doesn't take too long and there's no more buzz. Like, it doesn't do anything for you. You just have to have it. But the having to have it to fulfill that need or desire is the good which is sought. And even while you're doing it, you're like, this isn't good for me. I hate this. But I also want this. It's a bizarre thing. But we wouldn't do it if it was just all awful. If it was like cutting our own skin for the sake of cutting our own skin, even people who cut themselves do so, all right, for reasons which are perceived goods. Man always acts for a good, whether it's real or perceived. Um, so he says this, you can do a kind action when you're not feeling kind and when it gives you no pleasure, simply because kindness is right. But no one ever did a cruel action simply because cruelty is wrong. I'm doing this because cruelty is wrong. That's not why they're doing it. Only because cruelty was pleasant or useful to him. Does that make sense? He's not doing cruelty for cruelty's sake, right? They're doing cruelty because they gain some sort of morbid, wicked pleasure from it. But it's still a perceived pleasure, even if it's totally wrong. Otherwise, you wouldn't do it. You don't do it for its own sake. In other words, this is a great quote. In other words, badness cannot even succeed in being bad in the same way in which goodness is good. Goodness is, so to speak, itself. Badness is only spoiled goodness. And there must be something good first before it can be spoiled. We call sadism a sexual perversion, but you must first have the idea of a normal sexuality before you can talk of its being perverted. And you can see which is the perversion because you can explain the perverted from the normal and cannot explain the normal from the perverted. It follows then that this bad power, who is supposed to be on an equal footing with the good power, and to love badness in the same way as the good power loves goodness, is a mere bogey. In, other, in order to be bad, he must have, ha, in order to be bad, he must have good things to want 
and then to pursue in the wrong way. He must have impulses which were originally good in order to be able to pervert them. But if he is bad, he cannot supply himself either with good things to desire or with good impulses to pervert. He must be getting both from the good power, and if so, then he is not independent. He is a part of the good power's world. He was made either by the good power or by some power above them, both. Now, this is straight on um, straight on Augustinianism and the tradition regarding evil. Evil is nothing. Evil is an absence of good that ought to exist. When we describe a bad action, we describe something that is perverted goodness. When we say somebody lies, what we're saying is they didn't tell the truth. We're saying there's an absence of something that ought to be there, namely truthfulness. Okay? When you use a sexuality, you're saying a sexual perversion is a disordered sexual desire. But we can only say it's disordered because it lacks the goodness it ought to have. So evil then becomes an absence of good or an, even an absence of being. It's a negation. Evil is a negation of good. When we say you're sick, another way to say that is you lack health or good health. You don't say, I'm, you, don't say you know, I'm sick as though that's a sort of a fullness of being, you say, no, I'm sick insofar as I'm not um, operating the way I ought to operate. I'm lacking something. I'm lacking good health. When you have a vitamin deficiency, you don't say, well, that's just evil. It's a thing. You know, you say, no, it's an absence of something you ought to have. The same thing with goodness. We're going to circle back to this many times because I'm sure I'll do a, at some point a whole class on the problem of evil. But this is a really important concept. So when he's talking about dualism and he's saying, well, there's this bad, if there's this bad God, well, he can't have anything that's just purely all bad. Because if something was purely all bad, it would not exist. Even Satan has some element of goodness because he exists. Because existence itself is a good. So the fact that God created Satan there's still some element of goodness there. Even though he's deprived of all moral goodness and spiritual goodness, what it's called is ontological goodness. He exists. And the fact that he exists means there's some element of goodness there. And this is also then how we can say that everybody is created good because the fact that we exist means that we have goodness. We might lack elements of goodness. And so in that, in that way, if we lack another way, we could say it. We could say, well, it's bad. But we also could say, well, that's evil. It would be another way that, again, in philosophy and theology, traditionally it would, be, it would be thought of, that evil is a lack of goodness that ought to exist. 
So you can't have a God who's all evil and evil for its own sake because the only way you know something is evil or bad is, it's in, is in its relationship to something that is good. The only way that you know something is untruthful is if, you, is if it has perverted the truth. Does that make sense? Okay, so you can't have a God then that, that just has all of his own stuff because stuff itself is good. So what evil does is it deforms good or it takes away goodness in a thing. And so it negates goodness. So a God, an evil God cannot stand on its own because it can't get stuff to pervert unless there's goodness to get it. And this is what Satan does, and this is where he goes. To put it more simply still, to be bad, he must exist and have intelligence and will. But existence, intelligence, and will are in themselves good. Therefore, he must be getting them from the good power. Even to be bad, he must borrow or steal from his opponent. And do you now begin to see why Christianity has always said that the devil is a fallen angel? That is not a mere story for the children. It's a real recognition of the fact that evil is a parasite, not an original thing. The powers which enable evil to carry on are powers given it by goodness. All the things which enable a bad man to be effectively bad are in themselves good things. Resolution, cleverness, good looks, existence itself. Existence itself. This is why dualism in a strict sense, will not work. Because ultimately, you cannot set up two equal powers, one good and one evil, because goodness is always superior. The evil being would always have to be a parasite on the good, and therefore it's lesser than, and so it cannot be co-equal. Okay, so I'm going to finish up here. I freely admit that real Christianity goes much nearer to dualism than people think. One of the things that surprised me when I first read the New Testament seriously was that it talked so much about a dark power in the universe, a mighty evil spirit, who was held to be the power behind death and disease and sin. This, the difference is that Christianity thinks this dark power was created by God and was good when he was created, and it, and it went wrong. Christianity agrees with dualism that the universe is at war, but it does not think this war is between independent powers. It thinks it is a civil war, a rebellion, and that we are living in a part of the universe occupied by the rebel. Enemy-occupied territory, that is what this world is. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed, you might say, landed in disguise, and is calling us all to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. When you go to church, you are really listening in to the secret walkie-talkie from our friends. That is why the enemy is so anxious to prevent us from going. He does it by playing on our conceit and laziness and intellectual snobbery. I know someone will ask me, do you really mean at this time of the day to reintroduce our old friend the devil, hoofs and horns and all? Well, what the time of day has to do with it, I do not know. And I'm not particular about the hoofs and horns. But in other respects, my answer is, yes, I do. 
I do not claim to know anything about his personal appearance. If anybody really wants to know him better, I would say to that person, don't worry. If you really want to, you will. Whether you'll like it when you do is another question. All right. Well, let's end it there before we go into the, uh, the, uh, the next chapter. Thank you, everybody.